Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. On today's Extra Environmentalist, we honor our three-year anniversary by talking about the fundamental flaw in our economic system, a society that values production and consumption rather than healthy ecosystems. Today we're speaking with John D. Liu about his work on documenting the potential to restore large-scale ecosystems on the planet to reverse desertification, sequester carbon, and bring functioning ecosystems into human life for not only the health of the planet, but also for the health of society. When he was at the Los Plateau project in China, he saw how a concerted and directed effort could restore one of the places that was the genesis of the Han Dynasty and much of Chinese civilization and was slowly degraded from being overused in the way that so many places that were the origin of civilizations many hundreds and thousands of years ago are today, like in North Africa and in places across the modern-day Middle East. And he saw on the Los Plateau Project how the whole area can be restored, and it really inspired him for the potential of humanity to face these issues of resource depletion and climate change and be able to tackle them in a realistic yet optimistic way using principles of permaculture and planning. We started off talking with John today about the Los Plateau and what it was like to restore a devastated landscape. So what happened to me was I went out there in 1995 and I looked at this landscape and I thought, my goodness, it's the moon. How could the largest ethnic group on the planet have come from a place that has no vegetation? And then I started to look back into the historical records. And this place was a beautiful mixed forest grassland ecosystem with rushing rivers and wild animals, top predators everything. Lus is a sediment, and it's created by the movements of glaciers high in the mountains, and then it's delivered by wind and then settles in the plains. So there are Lus deposits all over the world, but the biggest Lus deposits anywhere are in China's Lus Plateau. And this is in the upper and middle reaches of the Yellow River. So the sediments were coming off the Himalayas. And the situation with this is that these sediments are very rich in minerals. 
but they require organic matter in order to be fertile. So over prodigious time, the Lisp Plateau was colonized by biological life, which fixed these extremely fragile sediments so that the soil itself is very powdery. So when you go there, your equipment gets completely covered with dust and you have to blow it out all the time. You yourself are completely covered by dust. And in 1995, I was asked by the World Bank. So I came in after about three years of serious study. And in looking back toward the period where the Chinese communist government was working, they actually started looking at this in the 1950s. They didn't have very much success through the 50s, 60s, and 70s and 80s, but this was probably because they were in chaos in many ways and really couldn't focus on this particular thing. So they made some interventions which gave data but didn't actually work. But what happened with this is that the these sediments are very prone to erosion. So not only is this place an amazing place because of its rich mineral soils, but it's an amazing place because this is the birthplace of the Chinese race. So the Han Chinese ethnic group and several other ethnic groups developed in this area. So this was a very important melting pot, if you will, in early civilization. So the migratory tribes like the Mongols, the Kyrgyz, the Kazakhs, all of these people were forming in these areas and they were vying for power. And one group was emerging, which was the Han Chinese. And when the Han Chinese, they kind of organized themselves and they were in a richer place and they were more sedentary. So you had these migrants in the Mongolian steppe and throughout Central Asia. And then you had this group. And of course, across the Himalayas on the other side, you had the subcontinent in India. So you had different early civilizations. And generally speaking, this is believed to be the second place on earth where settled agriculture began. So what we're talking about is a place which is of tremendous historical and cultural importance in earth and human history. But in 1995, the World Bank asked me to begin to document the rehabilitation of the Lus Plateau. So what had happened was that the Chinese, of course, at that time, had been experiencing very high growth rates for quite some time. So after 1978, when the Chinese had the opening to the outside world, this policy was implemented and they became the manufacturer for the world in special economic zones along the East Coast and so on. So they were having a lot of economic activity in this existing global economy suddenly, which was completely different from where they had been in isolation following the Second World War and the and the communist government taking over and being isolated. They fell out with the Soviet Union, so they weren't even part of this communist bloc. They were really on their own. And then what they found was that all these sediments were 
flowing through the massive erosion into the Yellow River. And this period of human history, the Lus Plateau was just an area, 640,000 square kilometers, approximately the size of France, that was totally wiped out. It was a collapsed ecosystem without virtually no vegetation and desperately poor people living in caves. It was really quite spectacular in a way. Mao had used this area to hide out. This was the Badlands, you know. At the end of the long march, he'd taken his army and you know, huge amounts of the army died on this torturous roundabout march. And then they ended up in this place, which was so remote and so destroyed that no one really considered it to be anything. It's really a, a ruin. So he went there and rebuilt his army and then took over the country from this place. So it's also got a very important role in modern Chinese history. But it is really the birthplace of the civilization. So all Chinese people came from this place originally, their ancestors. And by 1995, this ruined area, the landscape looked like the beginning of the Grand Canyon in every valley. Originally, the plateau had been more or less flat, but now it was subscribed by all of these gullies. So they actually called it, you know, this is the Liu family gully, and this is the Ho family gully, and this is the, you know. And so you'd go down these giant gullies, and you'd look at them, and you'd think, my goodness, because everything felt completely dry. You never had to urinate. You know, you just have all of the water taken out of your body. You had to drink tremendous amounts of water to rehydrate all the time. And so you're covered with this dust and you didn't have to urinate and the, the water is being sucked out of your body. And you just think, this is a desert. This is ridiculous. But then you see these giant gullies. And when you look at these gullies, you realize that huge amounts of water must have created these gullies. There's no other force which could have done that. And then you realize that during the rainy season, the monsoonal season where the rains come over the Himalayas, they get pretty much average amounts of rainfall. It's not ridiculous, you know, like thousands of millimeters a year or anything, but it's 600, 700, 500, like that, normal ranges. But it's all coming in a particular period. So when that water comes down... Because there's no vegetation cover, it was sending huge amounts of sediment. So they, I think they calculated 1,600,000,000 tons a year of sediments were leaving this area and going into the Yellow River. And so what that did was it totally destroyed the functionality of the river system. So now you had a river system where it's filled with sediments in the bottom and the people are trying to build up dikes along the side to contain the river. So the river is moving up and up and up, and the dikes are moving up and up and up, so that now the river is actually flowing higher than the landscape surrounding it. When you go to the archaeological digs, you find you know trees which are 30 children couldn't have put their hands around, in a ring, you know, enormous climax system. And what happened was 
that it was so rich, so wonderful, that it generated this amazing culture, this amazing science and art from the Han, the Qing, the Qin. Actually, you have to be careful with that because the Qing dynasty is the last one that ended in 1911. So the the Han, the Qin, the Tang, these dynasties were based there. These are the dynasties which had the most flowering of science and culture. They were vastly superior to most of the civilizations on the planet at the time. And some of the most longevity of of any civilization at the time. Yeah, I mean, they built up a magnificent civilization, and they sowed the seeds of their destruction at the same time because they cut the trees. And when the trees were gone, they were trying to do agriculture on the sides of the slopes. And, of course, once you start this process, you have begun to degrade the system. And if you follow that trajectory without intervention, it will lead to a collapse. And this is what happened in the Lus Plateau. They followed this degradation without sort of noticing it because it's taking place over generations until the point where the system collapsed and it could no longer support them. And then the wealth and the power, they just moved away and they left desperately poor people who more or less devolved, if you think about it that way. So you can look at this like an Easter Island situation but there was an escape route for the wealthy and the powerful. They could take everything and move the capital to Beijing, which they did. And they then left, you know, only the people who had nowhere to go were left. But what happened in 1995 was that they started to look at this and they were having all these problems with the sediments and the river, and they were trying to mitigate the sedimentation of the river because the river kept rising. They kept raising up the dikes and they also had built a dam on the river. And so the dam was filling up with the sediments and they started to calculate what's the cost of raising up the dam much higher. And also this constant mitigation, this constant dredging of the sediments compared to the cost of restoring a vegetation cover in the Lys Plateau. And they found that it's much cheaper (laughs) to revegetate than it is to constantly mitigate against the problem of sedimentation. So this is an econometric exercise that if you pursue this, and that's how you decide you're going to make your decisions. So if your decisions are made on logic and you say, well, it's more reasonable and more economic to maintain the system intact than it is to constantly mitigate the problems that are created by the system. Plus, you have a big broken system, and then you have all these problems downstream as well. So they made this econometric evaluation, and they found that it was four times more expensive to do the mitigation than it would be to go up there and do the work. Well, they they made a decision. Wow. They said, we're going to restore this. Now, When I went out there in 1995 and I looked at that, I thought, well, you may want to restore this, but are you really going to restore this? Because it's a ruin. You know, the first thing you look at when you see this, you can look in all directions and there's no vegetation cover. 
So your first thought is not like, this is going to be an easy thing. We can take care of that. Your first thought is, well, that's finished. It's done. Yeah, and you, you have footage of it in your documentary, and it just looks like complete arid desert. Yeah, it's a ruin. And what was interesting was that that was a very important part of what we did. First of all, it, it captivated me because it just was so fascinating to learn about the history of, I'm half Chinese, and to learn to study about what's going on in Chinese history was extremely interesting. And then to realize that I'd been a journalist, I worked for CBS News for many years and European television stations, and nothing I had covered, and that includes, you know, Tiananmen Massacre and the collapse of the Soviet Union, none of these things were as important as this. And I realized this at that time, and I looked at that, and I thought, well, okay, if you're going to try to do this, you know, what we had to film the baseline. And by filming the baseline, we really made it possible to see what you can do. So now if you go back there now, you don't find Oregon, the Andrews Experimental Forest on the McKenzie River. It's not a 95 meter high canopy of primary trees. You find a sort of okay looking system with some natural vegetation and some farms. I'm looking at the pictures that you post on your website and between that deserty looking valley and the one that it transformed into, it's night and day. It's it's amazing looking. It's so green and lush and beautiful. What kind of methods did the Chinese government employ to bring about such a fantastic result? First of all, they had to do an analysis. They had to look at this and say, well, what exactly is wrong? And I think it had helped them that they had made this econometric evaluation about sediments. So they were in this idea that, well, you can do econometrics. Okay, let's look at econometrics. So then they look at the production. They're growing sorghum or corn or vegetables on the side of a hillside, and they're getting nothing. So the yield in a thing like this with zero organic material in your soils, maybe you have a little fertilizers, chemical fertilizers, but maybe you can't afford that. So the the yield is just nothing. So when you calculate the value of the yield of productivity in comparison with the value of a functional ecosystem, then the light bulb goes off. And you say, oh my goodness, the value of a stream which flows perennially or the value of organic materials and fertile soils in comparison with the value of these meager crop yields is vast. It's huge. And that's not even talking about carbon sequestration or hydrological regulation, the natural regulation of hydrology, weather, climate. So suddenly you realize, oh, if you don't have any vegetation, the air is very thin and the wind speeds are very high and the temperatures are artificially elevated by a lot. You know, we're talking two to six degree temperature differentials in the IPCC discussions about the climate changes. We're talking about 10 to 20 degrees centigrade temperature differentials on exposed soils 
compared to below a canopy, a vegetative canopy. And I was just talking with someone from South Africa, and in certain very specialized habitats or biomes, like in Speckboom in the Eastern Cape, in a system called Thicket, you can have 30 degree temperature differentials. It can be 70 or 50. That's because of the lack of vegetation that's there? Well, you don't have a canopy. So what happens is you don't have any respiration because the vegetation isn't respirating. So your relative humidities are different. You've artificially elevated the evaporation rates. So any water that kind of appears just evaporates immediately. That's why you don't need to urinate when the system is devegetated. So after we go back in the later years, so now it's been 18, 19 years almost. And if you go back now, there's a totally different humidity, a different moisture in the air. The density of the air is different. This means that the severity of weather will be somehow mitigated. You also find out other things, like, for instance, the plants are emitting chemical substances around which raindrops can form and clouds can form. So without their respirating, you won't have any cloud cover. And if you have a cloud cover, you're also having an albedo effect, which is reflecting the sunlight away. You have not only the canopy of the vegetation, but you also have a cloud cover. So basically what we found was that this changes everything. And it is connected, as I started to understand the natural history and the the natural sciences of this, the earth sciences, I found that this is returning function to the system. And that functionality is not a single thing. It's a symbiosis between a, a range of functions. So we want all the carbon that we're talking about. So we're worried about carbon disequilibrium in the atmosphere. You watch Al Gore's film or you hear most of the people who talk about climate change. They make a gigantic assumption that carbon disequilibrium, the egregious emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that is human impact on climate. Well, that's not the only human impact. That's a symptom of a systemic dysfunction on the planet. If you treat the symptoms in a disease, you're not likely to get well. You, you need to, to find the fundamental problem and fix it. And the fundamental problem, what I've been looking at, suggests that the fundamental problem is that we didn't understand how the ecological systems function, and that there are only really two states, a functional state and a dysfunctional state. And if you're in the functional state, then you are aligned with natural evolutionary trends, which are very long term. I mean, they're connected to all of evolutionary time. So if you look at the earth, you know, the Lus Plateau is part of the earth. So when the earth formed, when was that? 4.567 billion years ago or some astronomical figure, which was incomprehensible to me, but quite a long time ago, the earth formed. It seems that it was a a molten rock. And it was surrounded by an atmosphere which didn't include oxygen. It was more like 
noxious gases, poisonous gases, where we could not, complex life forms could not live. And then over prodigious time, something changed about this earth. And the earth was completely colonized by biological life, starting with single cells. And then and th- this biological life differentiated and speciated, leading to infinite potential variety in genetics. And then as each generation of life died and laid down its body to nurture the next generation, there was an accumulation of organic matter throughout all of evolutionary time. And whether you're talking about the Lus Plateau or any place else on Earth, this is the progression over very long, long periods of time. And then you have the emergence of a bipedal primate, human beings. And this bipedal primate is different than other animals. And it has articulated thumbs and a giant brain and is working out complex language and abstract ideas. You know, it's us. And maybe we're selfish, maybe brutal to some extent in some times. And this bipedal primate looks around and sees the top predators. He's vulnerable. He doesn't have sharp teeth, giant claws. He can't run very fast, but he has a big brain and some social skills. So he looks around and he finds that the top predators have learned to hunt in packs. And I think that what human beings did was they learned how to hunt in packs. And that's one of the earliest impacts we see is mass extinctions of gigantic prey. Like mammoths and... Yeah, so the the woolly mammoths and the mastodons. So that's an interruption of the top predators and the predator-prey interaction, which starts to change the sort of evolutionary trends. But it's not a major impact that would cause the devastation that you see in the Lewis Plateau. That comes from agriculture. That comes from deforestation and then massive agricultural, sort of unsustainable agricultural practices. Now, I wanted to ask how the Chinese government even had the vision that large-scale ecosystem restoration was even possible. Because when you see the images of the difference between the arid, depleted, destroyed state of the plateau and then where it is today, it's really stunning. And that somebody had the vision to even begin that process is really incredible. I'm just wondering how that vision even became a possibility and whether the relative success in this project has started to spread or change minds or start looking at other areas in China or in other countries that could serve as a model for this ecosystem restoration. Well, I think there's still more to say about what they did. What the Chinese actually did and maybe it answers both questions simultaneously in a way. They looked at this and they were doing these types of econometric evaluations. And they looked at the value of the productivity compared to the ecological function. And they said, the ecological function is vastly more valuable than production and consumption of goods and services. Now, this statement that 
Ecological function is vastly more valuable than production and consumption of goods and services is something that has begun to resonate with me. And I've realized that this changes everything because in a way what's happening with the TEEB, the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity or the natural capital initiatives or many of these things, they're trying to monetize nature. They're trying to put a price on nature. The former CEO of Nestle wants to be able to privatize water. So, so on. This is ridiculous. What's interesting is that when you understand that ecological function is more valuable than production and consumption of goods and services, you realize that there is a flaw in reasoning in the global economic system that values the derivatives, production and consumption, higher than the source, which is just simply wrong. So there's no possibility without correcting the fundamental flaw in that system to have a positive outcome. You will destroy because you've created a perverse incentive to destroy the basis of air, water, food, and energy. The Chinese were saying, well, we can't have an area the size of France that is basically fundamentally degraded, filled with poor people at the same time while the East Coast is rising, is, is improving. We have a duty and a responsibility in a socialist country to support these people and to fix this. So whatever the odds, we have to try. So they, they did this. They chose to do this. And they have good scientists in China. They have dedicated, hardworking people who study the question, and they're seeking solutions. So they also had World Bank funding, a revolving development loan of $500 million, which is nice to have sufficient capital to do something like this. And they had technical support. So you had people from all over the world brought by the World Bank to assist. So they're all looking at this together. And everybody who was involved, I, I did an interview with Jürgen Fogela. Jürgen Fogela is the head of agriculture at the World Bank. You should also talk with him. We did a, a wonderful interview in 2005. I think it's fully available online where he talks about this. But what was interesting was that they made this decision. And when they started to do these econometric evaluations and they realized that the ecological function was more valuable than the production, this allowed them to take large areas of land out of productivity, out of production. Why have it in production when it's useless? It doesn't produce anything and it's destroying the ecological function, which is so much more valuable. So by doing this, they allowed nature to return to those areas. Then they had a subset of negative behaviors. People were cutting trees, people were farming on the sides of hillsides, and people were free-ranging goats and sheep. So they just banned them. They said, we see no good reason to continue to cut trees. We see no good reason to continue to farm on the hillsides. We see no good reason to let people walk around with their goats and sheep that eat everything down to the roots. So those are now illegal. So is this made illegal and enforced? And if anybody brought livestock into those areas that were under restoration, they were kicked out, the livestock were kicked out? Well, you have to use a type of participatory 
conservation. People-centered conservation is the term, I believe. What you must do is you must take the poachers and the goat herders and the slope farmers and the tree cutters, and you must make them the people who protect these areas. That's the only mm. possibility. They know how it's done. They know how to. You know, they they know who's doing it. They know how to protect it. But you have to value. The most important thing is the reason why they're cutting or trying to grow or free-ranging their goats and sheep is because that's the only way for them to be compensated. So what you have to do is you have to give them another livelihood as conservationists. And when you realize that in terms of the commons and in terms of sustainability and in terms of climate mitigation and adaptation and in terms of everything... It's more valuable to have them as conservationists than to continue to do what they do. Then you can pay them more than they make when when they do the negative behaviors. So this solves your problem, basically. You get people who know how to ensure that no one will cut trees, no one will do slope farming, and no one will free-range goats and sheep because they were the ones who did it. Do you pay them off or what what do you what's the strategy you behind it? You don't pay them off, you pay them. You pay them because they're doing something which is valuable. You value what they do. You value them as human beings. You don't see them as evil people who do this because they're bad. You see them for people who have no other choice because they're trying to survive. And so if you give them another way to survive, then they don't have to do that. What I found all over the world is people are completely ready to accept this. They don't want to have their children walk behind a goat herd. They don't want to try to scratch out a living on the side of a hill. And they know the value of a natural force. They don't want to devastate their environment. So if they have an alternative, and the problem is that the global economy says that money, wealth, is coming from producing and consuming things. Well, who says? The fact is, it's not. What we're calling wealth is the aggregation of monies to certain people, but we're leaving out the climate changes, we're leaving out the pollution, we're leaving out the poverty for billions of people, we're leaving out the desertification, we're leaving out all this stuff. If you add all that in, there's no wealth at all. It's below zero. So that's not wealth. That's a, a fake analysis, a false analysis. And what economists are calling externalities are not external at all. There are no externalities. That's just a lie. So you can call it an externality, but that doesn't mean anything. I think it was my mother was telling me Abraham Lincoln was telling a young boy, he asked the young boy, if you had a dog and you called his tail a leg, how many legs would the dog have? And the boy said, five. And Abraham Lincoln said, well, no, the dog would have four legs because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. You know, yeah. calling pollution, climate impacts, poverty, desertification, an externality doesn't make it an externality. It's just a lie. And what's happening is that the economic system that we have in place has a history. It comes from feudalism from slavery, from imperialism, from colonization, and from mercantile expansion following the Industrial Revolution. 
That's not a judgment. That's the fact. So this system that we have was created by people who thought that was a good idea. It's a good idea to have slaves. It's a good idea to say that some people are more intrinsically valuable than others. And that wealth comes from production and consumption of goods and services. So you have to produce more and sell more in order to have more wealth. Well, that's just not true. So when, when you realize that that's not true, you know, you can protest or get angry or something, but it's much more important to look at, well, if that's not true, what is true? So what I've seen in the List Plateau and all over the world is that ecological function is the basis of air, water, food, and energy. So when river systems flow, when there's huge amounts of organic material and the water infiltrates and is retained where it comes down in rainfall, when the soils are fertile and there's no chemical pollution, when the air is clean and functional, this is wealth. This is where wealth comes from. And this doesn't mean that you can't grow food or you don't have products or you don't have anything. It just means that you have to stay within a sustainable range. So we've just misdefined what is wealth. And when they took a look at this in the List Plateau and they said, well, it isn't working here to believe that producing more soybeans or more corn or more sorghum is where the wealth is coming from. When they changed that, they changed everything. And they re-regulated the hydrological cycle and they moderated the weather and they are able to survive droughts and they're able to grow food and they have increased incomes and everything is much better. So this suggests that this thinking is of extreme value and correct. And that to value the productivity above the function is a mistake. Modern man is rapidly exhausting the planet. Deserts are advancing and water is becoming scarce. It all seems hopeless. And every 12 years, the world population increases by a billion people. Looking down on Earth from space, the scale of the destruction is astonishing. But one man has discovered how to make our deserts green and our planet healthy again. We are following cameraman and ecologist John D. Liu, who sort of happened upon the solution and has spread the word ever since. It's possible to rehabilitate large-scale damaged ecosystems. So if we can rehabilitate large-scale damaged ecosystems, why don't we do that? 
the world gets more and more complicated all the time, but the solution to fix the major problems of the world's ecosystems remains reasonably simple. It all started in 1995 when John D. Liu, as an ordinary cameraman, got an assignment to film the Lush Plateau in China. He saw how the local people transformed an area almost the size of the Netherlands from a barren, exhausted desert into a large green oasis. He was baffled. From that moment on, greening deserts became his goal in life. The more I learned about it, the more I become interested in how this might relate to other parts of the world. And it looks like the history of the Chinese in the Lus Plateau is not simply about the Chinese. It's about what happens when human beings don't understand how ecosystems function. Liu used his camera to record the virtually superhuman efforts of the Chinese. He made a film about it, Hope in a Changing Climate, that he posted on the internet to distribute it worldwide. Ever since, Liu has been invited all over the world to assist government leaders, policymakers, and villagers with his knowledge and experience. Consider Egypt. Look at the Sudan, where 86% of the Nile flows to these countries. How can we support life in Egypt without restoring Ethiopia's mountains? So this is regional, national, and international. How long does it take to bring back a system to some sort of functionality? I, I think it, we're finding surprisingly quick if, if we apply the best design we can and, and go straight into earthworks and, and water harvesting and, and mass species plan out. Within three years, you, you're starting to see dramatic effects, recharging of the water cycles, rehydration, diversity starts to increase on its own. All kinds of opti optimistic things happen. And when we're talking Jordan, this is the Middle East, um, Jericho's just here, 10,000 years of permanent occupation. You can't really have a test case anywhere with, with a longer human effect on the landscape, let's say. The source of wealth is the functional ecosystems. The products and services that we derive from those are derivatives. It's impossible for the derivatives to be more valuable than the source. And yet, in our economy now, as it stands, the products and services have monetary values. But the source, the functional ecosystems, are zero. So this cannot be true. It, it's false. So we've created a global institution of economic institutions and economic theory based on a flaw in logic. So if we carry that flaw in logic from generation to generation, we compound the mistake. You're listening to episode number 65 of The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with John Liu about the possibility of restoring desolated landscapes. I think that now I've been to 80 countries, and what I'm finding is that the situation in, in many of these countries is very similar. 
For instance, I went to Ethiopia in 2006. And in Ethiopia, I thought, I'm going to find this desert, and it's very dry. And it did look like that. But then I saw a lot of indicators that were similar to the ones in China. Heavy sediment loads in river systems. Seasonal streams. So dry riverbeds that are empty most of the year, but then are raging in floods during the rainy season. And... I found out they have huge amounts of water. This is ridiculous. We're talking about thousands of millimeters. So like five times the rainfall of the Luce Plateau in a place where it's famous for famine. What's happened here? This place was an enormous forest. It's been deforested. It's been desertified by improper agricultural methods and deforestation. And why is this happening? Because we don't value the ecological function. Because we only value the products. So what happens if you value the ecological function higher than the products? It all comes back. So what I'm seeing now is a pathway that leads to total restoration of all degraded lands on the planet. We could do this in a couple of hundred years. And simultaneously, we have to realize that we don't only have problems with natural systems. We have problems in sociology, in psychology. We have problems where we think that somebody who has a million dollars or a billion dollars is better than someone who has no money. Well, what do you mean? These people are exactly the same. They're born... They live for some time and they die. And all of us are connected to all life since the beginning of time. We know this. We couldn't be alive if we weren't. So there's really no difference. And, you know, you have evidence of this. Thomas Jefferson said, all men are created equal. Well, that's a lovely thought. I mean, men, all men (laughs) are created equal, but also He was one of the largest slave owners in Virginia. So we have some hypocrisy, some things that we have to do. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say all men are created equal when he's a huge slave owner? When we look at this and we look back over time, we say, well, okay, feudalism. Well, that's not such a good idea. You know, maybe maybe we better have the Magna Carta. Oh, but that's only talking about... uh, equal rights for landowners. What about those who don't have any land? Where did the people who got the land? How did they get the land? What happened here? And then you have slavery. My goodness, for hundreds of years, people were capturing the strongest and the healthiest and the most handsome and most beautiful and enslaving them and taking them to another land in chains and forcing them to do whatever they wanted and killing them if they felt like it. Well, at some point, people said, well, that's not acceptable. So suddenly the people who were the biggest slave owners became the biggest champions of human rights. Well, that's good. That's nice. That's a, that's a good change. That's like the, the people who are cutting the trees becoming the conservators of forests. Or the people who are free-ranging goats and sheep becoming the people who are restoring grassland systems or something like this. So... We have repudiated 
colonization. When you go in and you take a gun and you put it at somebody's head and you say, your land is my land. Well, what? (laughs) What? What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. You're kidding, right? And, you know, we pretty much repudiated that. And slavery, well, that's not so on. I mean, if you got up on the stage and you said, well, hey, I think I can, people with a different color skin than mine, I can control them, you know, because I've got bigger guns. And that's it. Well, no, that's not okay. And we've repudiated that. But what we haven't done yet is we haven't realized that ecological function is vastly more valuable than production and consumption of goods and services. And the fact is, it's not my opinion that ecological function is vastly more valuable than production and consumption of goods and services. It's just a fact. We depend on air, water, food, and energy, and it all comes from the living systems on the earth. None of it is made. I really wanted to get your vision for a global economy that starts developing around this idea of restoration. And what would jobs look like? What would education look like? You know, right now we're seeing in so many countries across Europe and and the United States, they're experiencing these dramatic unemployment crises. We were just talking about finding ways to employ people as no longer destroying the environment, but helping to protect it and restore it. How would this global economy of restoration look like? And how would our institutions of education and, and jobs Like, what would people do when they went to work start looking like? First of all, it's not up to an individual to determine what society will do. So I'm just doing my research and trying to understand what I'm observing. But it does seem that it has important meaning. And what it seems to suggest is that the basis of money is now incorrect, And that we won't get a different result when we don't actually address the problem. So we're seeing how random, it's more like gambling or the speculation bubbles that we see. What's happening is that we're just betting on the difference between the cost and the price of a product, a commodity. So if it goes up or down, then somebody wins and somebody loses, and that's how a lot of money is made. Well, that's nothing. Nothing happened. So what's actually happening is that the percentages and total amounts of organic material in the soil is being reduced, or the total amounts and percentages of biomass living materials. So I differentiate between biomass and necromass. So organic materials in the soil, to me, this is mostly necromass, which is the decaying material that was once living. And the biomass is the living material. So the percentages and total amounts of biomass and the percentages and total amounts of organic material and the differentiation and speciation leading to infinite potential variety in genetics, these are the long-term factors and the determinants of survival and sustainability. So if we understand this and we align our human behavior with these trends, we will survive. If we don't, then we will collapse the systems that we rely on for life, and then everything will collapse. So when we see the Hollywood imagination of dystopia, 
then that's what's happening. They don't see any way out. Their imagination is the best we could do is to destroy the earth systems and walk around everybody armed to the teeth, shooting anybody that moves. And, you know, it's a zombie world. But as a journalist, as a human being, as a researcher, ecological researcher, I've been all over the world. And the fact is the majority of people are good. Starving people in Africa will invite me in and ask me to eat. I don't need their food. This is crazy. The majority of people are good. There's only a tiny minority of people who are extreme and dangerous. Being in the media and in communications, you see that there's quite a lot of manipulation going on. So once you found out that it's possible to use psychology to stimulate consumption... And you already have mass production, so you can produce any number of anything that you want. You just have to find a new market for it all the time. Now you can't go and colonize places anymore, exactly. So what are you going to do? You have to create and promote a global economy of people who want to buy things. But that's not what we need right now. And what I've noticed is that this also doesn't bring any satisfaction to people. And if you have an education now, if you go to high school, they teach you advanced math, and I'm terrible at math, but if you start to plot the scenarios, the trends, and you look at energy use or climate impacts or pollution, desertification, hydrological, you know, any of these things, we're done. We're on a highway to crash. So we're headed at 150 miles an hour toward a wall. And we've got to slow down and turn off this path and get on another path. This one is deadly. So anybody who has a halfway decent education can see this. I think illiterate people can see this. Everybody can see this. But not everybody feels that they have the power to do much about this. What I'm seeing is that there is a way out. There is an answer that solves most of our problems, if not all of our problems. So it is basically the valuation of products that force us to make more and sell more. So what is the real crux of this is what is money? Now we say that the money comes from how many products? Well, that doesn't work for me. I've been to Mali And in Mali, there's 14 million people in an area of 1,200,000 square kilometers. 14 million people in an area of 1,200,000 square kilometers. That's like the population of Los Angeles living in an area twice the size of France. And in this area is the inner Niger Delta. Coming out of the Ghanaian highlands is a river system, the Niger River, major river which makes a giant curve and goes down through Nigeria. But when it comes into Mali, it rises up in a flood every year up to about six meters over an enormous area. The people get on boats and just float off to higher ground. And I mean, it's an inland sea. It's huge. This is an enormous hydrological pump with very specialized biodiversity. It cannot be duplicated. There may be five or six places on Earth, I don't know exactly how many, that are that important. And according to the United Nations Human Development Indicators, these are the poorest people on Earth, or among the poorest people on Earth in Mali. 
they're only poor because we say that wealth comes from production and consumption. They produce and consume anything. And for them to participate in the global economy, they have to destroy their ecosystem in order to buy tennis shoes or a bicycle. But this is one of the five or six most important places on the earth for regulating hydrology and climate and weather? You're kidding. You're kidding. You know, this is super important that we recognize where wealth is coming from and that those people have equal rights and that they're not poor. They're only poor because we say that wealth comes from producing and consuming things. And where does that come? That comes from feudalism, slavery, imperialism, colonization, and mercantile expansion after the Industrial Revolution. So if we say, okay, we, we've rectified some of these other things, but we're still at this place, it's similar to flat earth, round earth. We're at th this period in human history. So the church says that the earth is flat, but science says, well, by the way, no, it's not. All, all the evidence says it's round. So you can pursue the dogma and demand that everybody believe that the earth is flat, but eventually everybody's going to say, well, no, you know, the emperor has no clothes. You're wrong. The earth is round. All the evidence tells us this. And what I'm saying and what I'm seeing is that all the evidence says the ecological function is vastly more valuable than production and consumption of goods and services. It's not even close. So our economy in a production consumption economy is much smaller than a functional economy based on ecologics on a functioning ecosystem. What you say makes so much sense. And when you lay it out the way you do, it seems so logical and people should just flock to it. The idea that ideas are like viruses and they spread very rapidly. And especially with our integrated communication systems and our worldwide communication systems that we have now, I'm, I'm wondering why these ideas have so little traction in our world, why the media doesn't pick them up and why they still are so sequestered away and hidden away. And, and it's only on little shows like ours where we can really go deep into these ideas and talk about the fact that maybe wealth is something that's just a construct. And maybe that if we think about wealth in terms of happiness and the things that really matter in our lives, that it wouldn't really be such a, a disparity between the, the wealth and the poor. Right now, what, what everybody is saying is that, well, oh my goodness, the communists, they want to redistribute wealth. Well, that's a kind of a, an assumption that the giant amounts of capital and money out there are the real wealth. Well, if you've made a mistake and you've valued the derivatives and you've discounted or completely failed to value the source of life, then suddenly, if you value the source of life as the basis of money... It's not monetizing nature. It's not privatizing these things. It's naturalizing the economy. This is a completely different concept, a radically different idea. And what this means is that everyone has value. Every ecosystem has value. And the more functional that system is, the more value it has. Now that is what we need because that leads all human effort to go toward maintaining and improving ecological function. And that's the way to feed people. And that's the way to mitigate and adapt to climate changes. And that's the way to ensure that we can reduce the risk of extreme weather. That's the way to reduce desertification. 
that's the way to employ everyone. And we do have to realize that it's not simply about labor and doing things. We sort of need to do less, not to do more. Now, because we say that wealth comes from production and consumption, you have to do more. But when you realize that wealth comes from ecological function, you need to lower your footprint. And by lowering your footprint, you increase wealth because you save on the other side. You know, once you understand this, in the, in the Andes, they have a concept that they call vivir bien, or living well. And this, I think, is very close to what we need to find, that it is possible to value other things besides production and consumption, and that true wealth is having water that's clean and running all the time, and the amazing biodiversity and time with your family and a vibrant community. But this, of course, requires us to address many of the psychological and sociological issues that we've built up and we haven't solved. Where are the first steps? Where are the organizational barriers that we need to break down or perhaps the psychological barriers that you were talking about there to start building this entire process of our species instead of valuing these constructs of money that are destroying our planet and incentivizing these activities that are destroying our planet and begin building these systems of valuation and these psychological processes of, of education and skills building that start regenerating the planet. You can find this all over the world. You can go to many ecological communities and many permaculture sites and permaculture training courses and so on and see this, and individuals in their homesteads and so on. But I think we have to apply this at scale. And so what I've been looking at is an idea to try to make this happen. So on the global scale, we have climate change, and it's a game changer. So it's threatening the corporations, the governments, everything. So no one expects that things can stay the same. Business as usual is not an option. So where do we go? We have to realize that we're all in this together. There's no separation. We we didn't. The people who are alive today didn't make these mistakes, didn't enslave people and drag them across the world or colonize. You know, we're all the descendants of the people who did this, but we're not the ones who did it. And we don't get to go backwards and choose what happened then. We get to choose what happens in the future. So the thing that I've been looking at is we need to do large-scale ecosystem restoration. It's now pretty much in all of the conventions. So if you look at the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Framework Convention on Combating Climate Change, and on the Convention on Combating Desertification, all of these have essentially the same goal, to have functional ecosystems. And now there's different funding mechanisms being discussed. And and of course, the first thing where the market people, the carbon traders rushed into the space because somebody started mentioning, oh, billions or trillions will need to be spent and so on. And they rushed to, to try to control the market and then they collapsed the market and failed too. But there's still an understanding that we have to mitigate and adapt to climate changes or we're going to suffer catastrophic outcomes as a planet, as humanity. So we cannot go there. That's understood at the political levels. 
But these people, you know, they're wearing cufflinks. They're riding elevators into office buildings. They're not going to do this. So who's going to do this? The most important people on the earth now are the people who are desperately poor at the edges of large degraded ecosystems because they have the potential to sequester carbon, re-regulate the hydrological cycle, to ensure fertility and increase fertility in the soils and feed everyone on the planet. So how do we engage these people? So they have been marginalized because they don't produce and consume things. And we've said wealth comes from producing and consuming things. We have to value the ecological function and we have to pay them. We have to pay them what they're worth because they have great value. They're the most valuable. Nobody sitting in London or New York playing the stock market is going to save us. The people who are going to save us are the people who are infiltrating water, increasing soil fertility, and protecting biodiversity. And these are the people who live on the land. So allowing them to have value, valuing them, valuing their lives, giving them equal rights, treating them equally. You know, we're saying that we're going over there to do overseas development aid. The aid workers drive white Toyota Land Cruisers from their gated communities with armed response teams. Their salaries are thousands of times higher than the whole community they're trying to help. This is crazy. We have to go there. Who's willing to go there and live as equals to build sustainable, natural, passive, solar, off-grid, energy-efficient, to do permaculture for agriculture, and to do massive soil creation, massive water retention landscapes, massive reforestation, massive grasslands restoration. That's what's needed for humanity to survive. We can do this. But you have to get your mind around how big it is. It's a giant change. And it doesn't mean that we don't produce and consume anything anymore. It just means that we have a kind of different, a more laid back lifestyle. And that we actually try and we're all going to fail. But we're going to have to forgive ourselves for our failures and move on. And do the best that we can to treat everybody the same. To make sure that everyone is equal. And that everyone can survive because what Eleanor Ostrom and John Nash and others were telling us and have been telling us is that our interests and the interests of everyone else are exactly the same. Pursuing selfish interests are no longer in your own interest. You must pursue the interest of everyone because we all have this need. And that allows us to look at our cultural and our intellectual and our health issues and remove all pollution. We can have a world with zero pollution. We can have a world with completely functional ecosystems. We can protect biodiversity into future generations. We can do all these things if we value ecological function higher than production and consumption of goods and services. Now, you mentioned the failure that each of us experience trying to live with our values every day and, and on projects that we do. And we see economies around the world failing right now because they're based on this false model that has valued these abstractions over ecosystem services. And so as this 
crisis point is hitting. How can we use those crisis points as an opportunity to propose this work that you are talking about as an alternative? Because we have these 7 billion people now, and there's a lot of people who would say that we're headed for this crisis because we're overpopulated. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, the the thing that was a little bit worried that you said was you said ecosystem services. I never really talk about ecosystem services because I think they're anthropogenic. They're imagining that the earth is here to provide us with some sort of services. We are part of a gigantic functional organism. So the function is what allows us to have any services. So we can want services, but we need function. So the services argument, ecological services, I've been going over this now for several years, and it's very close to the monetized nature argument, and it doesn't work. So you have to realize ecosystem function is what is needed. If we have functional systems, we will have services. But if we want and demand ecosystem services, then we might destroy the function. We're thinking about it incorrectly. And as far as the population goes, you know, right now, if you go to any place on the earth where they have women's rights, access to contraception, and family planning, then the birth rates are more or less stable and flat. In fact, you're getting into inverted pyramids in many places where the birth rates are below replacement. So if we are to make a major paradigm shift toward restoring the earth, then we're going to have to engage all of the people who are at the edges of large degraded ecosystems. And we're going to have to give them access to education. And we're going to have to give them meaningful work. Instead of saying, well, you go manufacture something or scratch out something or sell us your commodities to go into this global market, we're going to have to say, your work is so important because you are regulating the hydrological cycle, the climate, you're ensuring that the earth is fertile. And we're going to have to provide them with some training in order to do this, because many of the things that they're doing now are basically Neolithic agricultural practices, which are destructive. Or we've given them even more mechanized destructive ways to do things, because we are concentrating on the products rather than on the functionality. So when we engage them, what I've been thinking about is research, training, and innovation centers for ecological restoration. And I think that there needs to be people from all over the world, because most of these communities at the edges of degraded ecosystems, there's not even anybody who's gone to maybe university. You know, if they've been able to go to middle school or high school, it would be lucky. And if they do, they probably leave the community and never come back. So what's missing is educated people. So what we need are to have scientists and students and permaculturalists and engineers go to these places and share the lives, not go there helicopter in or drive in in a giant tank and live separately. Build communities together where everyone is equal where you're using natural materials and teaching how you build passive solar earthen structures that are not rudimentary, but are highly well-engineered and designed and beautiful and livable and charming and elegant. And then 
add women's rights, family planning, and access to contraception, and the birth rates will go flat because that's what's happened everywhere where that's the case. So then we have industries which are coming up that we need to do. But these industries are not simply extractive, they're regenerative. They're doing something which is not just enriching the shareholders and the people who are doing it, they're enriching everyone. They're enriching the earth. They're ensuring that future generations will have biodiversity, will have water, will have fertility. And what's happening with this is that that is where the value is. That is the basis of money. And when we recognize that as, a, as humanity, collectively, so it doesn't matter what I think, you know, my opinion is not very important. What is important is a collective consciousness of humanity to understand that ecological function is more valuable than production and consumption of goods and services. When that is the case, then all, all ecosystems will be restored within a few hundred years to their optimal states. We have to talk about what is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is not to go shopping. The meaning of life is not to surround yourself with material things. And people know that intrinsically in indigenous communities around the world. But the global economy has been imposed on them. They've had no choice. Armies came and told them, this is it. You have to do this. You know, and it's corrupting of the people who participate in, in those systems. But now we just have to look at it and in a way, not so much about judgment or blame, but about survival. We're not talking about sustainability, really. We're talking about survival. So, you know, if we want to survive, we will have to be sustainable. And to be sustainable, we will have to have functional ecosystems. And if we have functional ecosystems, then we will have clean air, clean water, fertile soils, and equality. To close out today, I wanted to talk about that paradigm shift that you were referring to there, where we really are valuing those ecosystem functions and making that the core way that we are operating as a human system. So how do you see that paradigm shift playing out how can we facilitate that? And then how can people follow your work and what you're doing and your thoughts and your films? Well, there's a lot of places. I think you can go to whatifwechange.org. You can go to www.eemp.org. That's the Environmental Education Media Project. We're also looking to try to engage a large participatory group of people in our work. There are many different ways to do that. You could screen our work, but you could also participate in the production of our work. All sorts of different possibilities. So that's one thing. But I think what I see now is that at the global policy level, the Bond Challenge, the Global Partnership on Forest and Landscape Restoration, the Society for Ecological Restoration the Ecosystem Return Foundation, which is a new foundation that's been created. There's new EU programs. There's all kinds of programs for ecological restoration. And Global Environment Facility is, is participating, World Bank, United Nations. And through the Ecosystem Return, we're trying to get private 
equity and wealth engaged because they need to survive as well, hopefully. Because otherwise, if we don't have this, we're going to end up in a very serious conflict. So what I see and hope for is a kind of an evolution toward what's correct. We've got something which is not correct now, and we need to adjust. And if we're able to adjust, we can get on a pathway which leads to survival and sustainability. If we're unable to adjust, I think we're going to have a very, very hard time in the coming decades. And it it may not be that far away. It may be very, very close. So what I see is that these research, training, and innovation centers can act to aggregate all the technologies necessary for ecological restoration. And they also provide the ability to work on the social, sociological, and psychological issues that we have to deal with collectively in a multi-ethnic multicultural, multi-faith perspective, a way to say, okay, let's work together. Let's trust each other. Let's do our best. We'll always fail somehow, but we'll always forgive ourselves. We'll forgive each other and we'll go on. That I think is the best case. Then if we can take these grassroots initiatives and connect them to the large-scale global partnership on forest and landscape restoration bond challenge, two billion hectares of restoration that's needed, then we have the skill sets, the people, the meaningful lifestyles, and we have the capital and the goal of doing this. And as we move in this direction, it becomes clear to everyone So instead of arguing or confronting or or fighting about it, it becomes clear to everyone that ecological function is not negotiable. You have to have it. You have to have water. You have to have air. You have to have fertility. So it's clearly more valuable than products which we use for a little while and then end up on the trash pile and, and are leaking toxic substances into the water, into the soil. Ecological function is clearly more valuable. And when everyone understands this, then we will have flipped. And now we have inverted the economy. We've valued the derivatives and we've discounted the source. That has to change. And when that changes, the value of the people who are desperately poor at the edges of large degraded ecosystems are no longer desperately poor. They're extremely important people because they're doing the work that has to take place to restore ecological function and wealth and survival and sustainability to the planet. And maybe there's a disruption for people who have billions and trillions and who knows what, and they're flying in their private jets to their gigantic yachts to snort cocaine or whatever they're doing. But I don't think that's the issue, you know, really. The issue is how does humanity survive? And maybe maybe the people are, are not really like that. Corporations and governments and they're all made up of people and the people have a choice. Where do we want to be? Do we want to be in a system which is derived from feudalism, slavery, imperialism, colonization, and mercantile expansion after the industrial revolution? Or do we want to be on the right side of history, rebuilding the natural ecosystem for our descendants in the future? Because we're going to die. Which side of history do we want to be on? Do we want to be on the side of history that has beautiful flowing rivers in the future and giant forests again? We can have 
90 meter high canopies. We can have functional grasslands. We can have top predators and and tremendous biodiversity all around the world if we do what we know is right. If we study and analyze this correctly. This is what I see now. This is opening before me and I see it. We can do this. It's not easy. It's certainly not easy. But transformational change is possible. And because it's possible and because it's needed, we actually are obligated to do this. And that wraps up our conversation with John Liu about the potential for humanity to restore degraded landscapes all over the planet into healthy functioning ecosystems that can potentially solve many of our global and social challenges. And, you know, part of the vision is just so fantastic that we could be engaged in something like that, that it's really inspiring. And yet there's still a part of me deep down that says, you know, is something like this even possible on such a large scale? Could we really have uh, an awakening of global consciousness to the point where we say, yes, we can restore degraded ecosystems and do it in a concerted and planned way? It just seems like there's so much divisiveness around the planet when it comes to these kinds of, you know, global initiatives that I don't know if we really could do it on a global scale. What do you think, Seth? We look at places like Detroit, where the whole economy is kind of falling apart, where it is desperately in need of something like the project that John Liu did in, in the Los, Los Plateau. You know, if we had that kind of renovation of the whole society there and re, revitalize the entire landscape of Detroit, it would look like a totally different place and we, we would probably be very happy to live there. But it takes a lot of willpower and a lot of effort to make these kind of projects happen, especially when it's you're talking about a city and you're not talking about a large uh, green area. I think that is a big distinction as well. The, the difference between making a, a large garden, perhaps, and revitalizing a large uh, metropolitan area. Yeah, and I think another big barrier is John brought up how there's people who are trying to solve, you know, uh, global climate change or desertification or all of these things that say the UN level. And these are people with cufflinks wearing suits, taking elevators up to office towers. And it's really hard to get out of the mindset where you think that those people are going to fix the world, that the people who are in the offices of, you know, architects or engineers or certain professions are the ones who are going to save the planet. And even though those certain professions are very useful in doing so and can be part of the solution being an engineer myself i understand that but 
the people we really need to rely on to do this. I think John makes a really great point that it's people on the edge of large-scale damaged ecosystems who really can be the caretakers and stewards of this next phase of humanity where we really start working together. And what John was talking about in regards to thinking uh, in a way where we realize we're all working together, it brought up this thing that I saw recently from a French degrowth group called the Declaration of Interdependence. And they wrote it specifically as a counter to the Declaration of Independence, where the model of, you know, the late 1700s up to 2000 was this whole ideal of Declaration of Independence, declaring your independence from your fellow humans and from other nations and such. And if we're going to make it through this next phase of humanity, where we find ourselves pressed up against the limits of a full planet, then we're going to have to work together on an unprecedented scale. And it can be scary sometimes to think about how big these challenges are and how very difficult it is going to be to work them out. But unless we come at it with an idea of a declaration of interdependence, then it's going to be a very, very tough road ahead. In the three years we've been doing this show, Justin, one topic that comes up again and again is the fact that humanity needs to work together as a unit, as a cohesive species. And that is something that we are not very good at right now, working together as a species. We're great at working together in small groups and small, cohesive little groups. But when you ask a population to come together to make global change on the scale that we actively need, it's extremely, extremely difficult for people to unite around any sort of large-scale issue. It speaks to the magnitude of this challenge ahead of us. One of the really important points in that declaration of interdependence from the degrowth movement in France was on the idea of convivialism and the declar and what they're saying is that there is a search now for what is called a convivialism, an art of living together that allows humans to take care of each other and of nature without denying the legitimacy of conflict because there will always be conflicts. But using that conflict as a creativity sparking force, a means to ward off violence and killing in order to find this doctrinal minimum that can fuel, sustain, and legitimize a number of simultaneous answers across the globe. I feel very happy with how our show has gone over the last three years in helping to contribute to that in whatever little way that we have been able to. And so it's been really exciting to hear from people all around the world who are struggling with these same issues, who really are understanding how broken the mainstream political dialogue truly is and how if you just listen to the words of politicians on the nightly news and on television, you're not going to hear them talking about how do we develop an art of convivialism. I think that this is something that we're going to have to produce at a grassroots level that then builds uh, and scales up to something that can happen on city-wide and regional levels and then builds itself into a movement that has so much energy and has become so much a part of the culture that it actually can enact itself on the scale of a whole country or continent or maybe even a global level. We can't thank our listeners enough for their extremely generous help with not only scheduling interviews but sending in financial donations to our show. We'd like to thank Linda in Denman Island in British Columbia for sending in a very generous donation. Thank you so much, Linda. We also want to say thanks to Simon in Norway, who gave us a generous donation. Thanks also to David in Boulder, Colorado. And Robin in my current hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia. And Josh in Raleigh. 
North Carolina, where I live. And also Bill and Cindy on Gabriola Island in BC. Thank you so much, Bill and Cindy. We really appreciate it. We also heard from Brandon from the Newosphere. Thank you so very much, Brandon. That's right. We don't have an address for you, Brandon, but we do know that you're out there somewhere listening. So thank you so much. In doing this show for three years, I never really thought that when we put together that first podcast that we'd ever make it to an episode 65, and especially an episode 65 that sounded so much better than episode number one. And I'm not (laughs) saying that to say like, wow, our show is amazing. I'm saying that because our episode one was so terrible. And if you go back and listen to it, it is just awful. I don't even know how I spoke before I did this show because it must have been awful. I mean, listen to that thing. I think we were using like some headset microphones and it sounded like we were talking into a spacesuit. And uh, yeah, we just stuttered yeah, constantly. It's, or... it's been a transformational process, not only with <laughs> the show, but with our own presence on this on this podcast, I'd say, Justin. I mean, you have, have come so very far in the way you speak. It's just fantastic the transformations inside and out that this show has, has brought about in both of our lives. And I know that in many other people's lives as well, it uh, has, has taken root and has helped to make the world a little bit better in just a little bit of ways. We're very fortunate to be part of this global movement that's building that doesn't necessarily know entirely what it is yet or where it's going, but to be just one small part of it. And one person who is also part of that is Quasi Periodic, who left a voicemail for us recently. Hey guys, it's Quasi. Taking a break from trying to get this mower started. Just started listening to y'all's interview with KMO, and it was just striking me really clearly what it was that I've been wanting to talk about. But there just seems to be a narrative growing in clarity through podcasts particularly. That's where they're moving fastest right now, but something that McKenna kicks off and then sort of re-sparks by Bill Hicks. But then once we get into podcasts, we start with Lorenzo and then kind of obviously going into KMO, who uh, brings it more to a contemporary situation. And then for me, it goes... Through y'all, who, you know, take the peak oil and alternative economics with the psychedelic perspective. For, for me, it feels like the narrative is still evolving, through, especially through these podcasting, psychedelically influenced comedians like Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell. But it's also hung up on what do we do next? Like, these comedians, I feel like, are reclaiming the humanity of the experience in a good way, but on the practical side of let's rebuild society, we run into capitalism and the market, which is probably the most powerful organization that humans have ever designed. We really run into some problems with money and power and guilt, you know? All the people who are really talking about this know that they're privileged and know that all the money that they're spending at Starbucks could be really better spent saving lives or at a loss as to what to do. And it, But it's something to do with escaping materialism, reclaiming humanity, and combining the market with evolution in some way. And it's something that it just really feels like it's on the verge of breaking through and you all do a good job because you do human level stuff while still doing society level stuff i can't figure out what it is that we're we're, we're quite what it is that we're looking for but i feel like it's getting so much to the tip of my tongue and so much to the tip of everyone's tongue that it's coming to me now it's like there is an evolving concept here yeah i can't i can't follow this thread to the end i don't know what the end of it is yet so your work is definitely on the right track but we need not lectures we need to build these trust relationships. So we need time to do that. I don't have any time. I have time for 
the, these conversations that I can plug in when I'm doing other things with my hands. I have time to let the let this moat engine get unflooded and uh, before I try starting it again to make this call. But we don't know yet. We don't know. But thank you for pushing that conversation forward and for allowing me to be part of it. Quasi-periodic thank you for your continued voicemail contributions throughout the years of our show. And I think you're really on to something there, is that people know that we're at a loss to describe this next experience for humanity. It is on the tip of everybody's tongue, this next stage of human experience. And we really do have to work really hard at humanizing the economy because we're all just one very small part of this global change that's going on. And, you know that scaling of those human interactions, those ability to care for and with other people, it's really important. And I don't know if there is a way to scale it necessarily. It is a, about recognizing that interdependence. And, you know, it is an ongoing conversation that we're all a part of. And I think that one of the things I see for us in the near future is not only just going to more events, but also organizing more events and trying to develop those networks of people who are engaging on these issues and building those in a specific place, in a locality where people know about it and can engage with it on a regular basis. So thanks very much to Mr. Quasi Periodic from his tractor out in the fields who has been actively who has actually invited me out to his farm before, and I've actively actually got to see his farm. It's, it's a very fantastic place. I've got to see the tractor that he, he rolls around on and the fields which he plows. He has sheep and goats and all kinds of garden projects out there. It's a really, really nice place. If you're ever in this part of the world and you want to meet up with Quasi-Periodic, email the show. I'll hook you up with his information, and you can go see Quasi-Periodic's farm. That's, Sorry, that's Quasi, right, Quasi-Periodic. I just, I just <laughs> invited the whole world to your farm, Quasi-Periodic. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> Absolutely. So looking back on three years, Seth, what do you think you had in mind heading into this and what has surprised you? You know, Justin, when I started this podcast show, it was just because I knew you had some really fantastic ideas that I wanted the world to hear. And it has grown so much more than that. And not to say that your ideas are not great, but there are some, fanta there are some fantastic ideas. thinkers out there who we have had the opportunity to speak to on a one-on-one -on -one basis and to interact with on in such a personal way. And especially the listeners as well, that has been fantastic. The people who call into the show, the people who write into the show, the people who send in their hard-earned money to the show, who have who just connect with it in such a meaningful way. The Facebook page has been, has been out of control and just people coming up to us in at conferences or um, on the street when I visit you, Justin, people are like, oh, the Extra Environmentalist, I love that show. And that, it's just, it's just a fantastic feeling to know that you're putting out content that, that people actually like and that people are really connecting with. And that's been really meaningful. What about you, Justin? What have you taken from this show? Yeah, I think I'll just echo that and say that the people that I've interacted with as a result of the show that I maybe wouldn't have otherwise. It's just been incredibly rewarding. And I would much rather have 100 really engaged people who listen to the show on a regular basis than the you know millions who watch the evening news every night. The freedom that we have on a podcast like this is that we really can explore these edges of human thought in a way that you can't in any other type of media. And that's what makes podcasting so exciting to me, so rewarding and so much fun, is we can talk about the the potential to pay people on the edge of large-scale degraded ecosystems to save our asses in the rest of the world. 
Whereas you'd never hear that idea on CNN coming out of Wolf Blitzer's mouth. We should really thank our team as well, Justin, the people that have, are behind the Extra Environmentalist Success, our blog editor, Louisa, our web developer, Chris, our audio editor, Kevin, uh, Michelle, who's doing video. And thanks to Simon Jam for helping us to organize this interview today. And everybody else who has been just a f- essential part of the show. These people just are so essential to the show, making making it a reality, making it possible for us to to put resources where they need to be and to let people excel at what they're really good at. It's been a fantastic ride working with this amazing team, and I'm really looking forward to, to working with them more in the future. And it's all because we're trying to work on that art of conviviality, of learning how to work with other people with limited resources and to make some really meaningful media for the world. And so um, I... Unlike Ben Bernanke, we're not going to be talking about tapering anytime soon. We're going to be keeping up with the production of the show and with other types of media as well, with lots of video on the way. I wanted to say a special thanks to everybody who's been sending in news stories recently, to to Robin, who's been sending in lots of great news stories. And we wanted to take some time to talk about three years of our show today, so we didn't get into news items, but we'll be doing that again in the future. If you want to be like quasi-periodic and you want to call in and leave a voicemail, you can reach us through the landlines at plus one. 919-701-9872. That's 919-701-XTRA. You can also find us on Skype at The Extra Environmentalist or through our SoundCloud page. Just download the SoundCloud app onto whatever smart device, iOS device, iPad, desktop, laptop, computer, anything that you may be listening on, and then you can leave a SoundCloud message for us too. And we do love to hear from you. If you like listening to this episode, there are actually 64 more episodes, all free, all online, all ready to download right this second. Head on over to our website to find a full list of all those episodes ready to download to your, your smart device, your smartphone, your iPod, and take it away. You can also find us on Facebook where there's a fantastic conversation going. We post all sorts of links and interesting articles where you can engage in the discussion with like-minded folks and be a part of the community. Head over to our blog, extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog, where you can find all sorts of interesting articles written about topics that you like guaranteed. And if you don't like, we would love to hear your comments about them. Uh, X Environmental is our Twitter handle. And so in our coming episodes, we're going to be speaking with more people about the topics that we covered with John today and on all the topics that we like to cover that we cover on our show in regards to the global crisis, the multi-pronged global crisis that we face and the responses that people are developing in recognizing them for what they really are. And so three years into our show, there's some people out there who think that our show should sound more like Radiolab, should be less of people having long-form conversations and more sound effects. And so for all of those people, I recommend that you listen to the end of our show today. So thanks for three years of listening to The Extra Environmentalist. We're looking forward to another three years of Extra Environmentalist activities. I hope you are too.
we came from another planet. And the reason is because we don't like it here. I mean, why, if we're from here, if we belong on Earth, why aren't we comfortable on Earth at all? We need nice, smooth surfaces and right angles, and we need it to be cool and not too hot, just a little, just perfect. Like, why wouldn't, when it's hot, why wouldn't we just, yeah, fuck it. Why wouldn't we be like that if we belong here? And it's weird because people, people that are uh, whatever you call the, you know, there's environmentalists and then there's people who are whatever. They just are, hate environmentalists. But that's what people get angry at environmentalists because they think it's, they're slowing down the economy and creating restrictions. And a lot of these people are Christian. A lot of these people are very devout Christians. And that's such a confusing thing to me that if you believe that God gave you the earth, that God created the earth for you, why would you not be, have to look after it? Why the fuck, why would you not think that when he came back, he wouldn't go, what the fuck did you do? I gave this to you, motherfucker, are you crazy? The polar bears are brown, what did you, what did you do to the polar bears? Did you shit all over every polar bear? What did you, who did this? Who spilled this shit? Who spilled this? Come over, did you fucking spill this? What is that? It's oil, it's just some oil. I didn't mean to spill. Well, why did you take it out of the fucking ground? Because it wanted to go faster. I don't, well, I'm not, it's not, I'm not fast enough. And I was cold. What the fuck do you mean cold? I gave you everything you needed, you piece of shit. Well, because jobs, I wanted a j what is a job? What is, explain to me, what's a fucking job? You go, like you work at a place and when people call when they, their game doesn't work and you help them figure it out. What do you do that for? For money. What do you need money for? Food. Just eat the shit on the floor. I left shit all over the floor. Fucking corn and wheat and shit. Grab it up, make some bread. What are you doing? Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't have like bacon around it, and like I like when it has like like bacon on it. And br i 
episode number 66 of The Extra Environmentalist, we talk with Michael Stone and Ian McKenzie about the crisis at Fukushima and their new film, Reactor, as well as Willem Thwarta from the Netherlands talking about funding ecosystem restoration projects, like the one we talked about today with John Liu. One of the things that came up for me in Japan, too, was starting to notice in people's responses how there's a big difference between caring about an issue and caring for something. And you hear that a lot in our language. Sometimes we'll say something like, I care a lot about the election. But that's not the same thing as saying, I really care for the election, or I really care for this issue. Caring about seems to keep us a little bit dissociated. In the right way, you can talk about a green restoration industry. But it's important that you do it from the ecosystem perspective. So it, it is all about knowing where you are going to plant or restoring the system. Uh, so knowledge, ecological knowledge is very important. Jab is brought to you by a great stinking pile of foundation money that will keep us from doing anything subversive. I'm on the phone. I can't pick up the poo right now. I gotta go, guys. Have a great show. Is this thing on? Is it? Is it on? Hold on. Stop. You are listening to Radio Jab. Radio Jab. So why are we in the emergency room here? In the emergency room today lies the goldfish behind the brains of Goldfish Sachs, the most successful investment bank in the history of the world. Now, I don't know. I just, I just have a hard time putting my mind around the fact that this goldfish here was able to transform the whole banking industry as we know it. Well, you're, you're seeing it in its last days. This goldfish has been through a lot. This goldfish is now dying because it has lived out its entire life story and dream in a way that no one could have imagined for a bank. It really has. So gathered around his bed, I see a whole group of people who have been affected in his life. I'm not sure. I think I think it's in his last moments here. So let's, let's see if we can reconstruct the life of this goldfish that has been so influential. Let's take a brief ride through time and go back to when this goldfish was born. Whoa, whoa, hang on, you're adding kerosene? Peter, that's insane, that'll destroy your body. Kerosene is fuel, Brian. Red Bull is fuel. Kerosene is Red Bull. I want you to leave me alone, Mark. It looks like we're in Arkansas or something. Well, how'd you know we went to Arkansas? It looks that way, and it looks like we're back about 20 years. I blindfolded you and stuffed you in the back of my DeLorean, and then we went back in time. Don't you remember that, Robert? You did, but I was able to see through the blindfold. I am really good at getting away from blindfolds and gags. I mean, I even drugged you. Yeah, you did, and that's a little bit why I can't see. But anyway, but now I'm starting to come out of my drug-induced haze, and I'm seeing Jed Carlmore. It looks it looks just like Jed Carlmore, the legendary owner of the, of the Goldfish Sacks. How did we get here? We're going to go and see the early moments of Goldfish Sacks when it first originated. You see, Jed Carlmore discovered one day that he had a very unique ability to communicate with his pet goldfish. Unique ability to just words came to me like I was talking for the goldfish. I 
put a little food on the top of the water and the goldfish would come and he'd eat the food and I'd put a little more on the top of the water. And I see, thought, you know, Jed really thought that some water, amount of food would finally satiate the, the goldfish's hunger. But he kept just eating and eating. His little mouth moving and gulping at the air and getting, getting the goldfish flakes that I'd put on the top of the water. And it kind of looked like he was talking. And so I just, I just started talking for him. I'd say, I'm going to want some more of that. Give me some more, Jed. So I, I'd put some more on the top. And his mouth would be moving. And I'd, I'd say, talk for him. like. Jed, that's so good. Give me more. I want more of that. One day, I just did it all the time, and I wouldn't even think a thing about it. And then one time, I got a little bit behind on my, my credit card payments, and, well, the bank called, and I'm talking to somebody on the phone, but just, just to ease my own stress, talking to this person, I'd be feeding the goldfish, and then I'd be talking for the goldfish, and more, give me some more, more. Someone at Jeb's bank was listening in on the call and flagged it as an excellent strategy for expanding their quarterly revenues. And somebody in an executive at this bank, they liked it. They thought this was, I don't know, some kind of sound business advice. And the next thing you know, I'm in Philadelphia. I'm at this big boardroom with all these dudes in suits. And they're asking me to talk for the goldfish. Now, fortunately... Robert has a way with words and his body and was able to entice a certain recording of this boardroom meeting in Philadelphia to be released. A lot of growth. Well, we did hear from our customer service line they were going to foreclose. So you mean no one has ever heard this tape before? That's right, Jab. This is a really historic moment in the history of finance, economics, and the world. That's why we're talking over. Extreme growth in our equity price. I mean, it's delivering the most value to our CEO that anything ever could have. We flag calls with our most important customers and run that up the chain of command. And somehow this guy, Jed Carlmore, has had the most impressive recovery rate of, of his assets ever since he got this goldfish. And I don't, I don't understand it. I just don't understand it at all. Well, well we brought him here today to talk to him. And he's standing up here in front of the boardroom with this goldfish. Why don't we ask him? So, Jed, tell us, how do we save our bank? Well, I, I don't know what, what to tell you, actually, but let me feed the goldfish, and we'll see what he says. So, take a little, take a single flakes, put them on there, and I see the mouth moving. Goldfish says, more, more, I want more of that. Give me more. Here's a string of random sound effects. And they, they was eating it up. These these banking guys, these big suit-wearing, fancy fellas, they thought that was some kind of wisdom, like out of the mouth of Socrates or something. I don't know. As time went on, Jed started feeding the goldfish other things. Not just the flakes anymore, but larger things. Pieces of metal. Mortgage-backed securities. Tax returns. And whole piles of steel. Jed didn't know why this was happening, and he couldn't understand how the fish just kept growing and growing and eating and eating. Jed turned to a neuroscientist to figure out what was going on with this goldfish and why its banking advice was so amazing. 
Because all my friends are neuroscientists, we went to Glenn Emmett. He's a neuroscientist, specifically for goldfish. Perfectly uh, aligned symbiotic relationship between the natural world and our own species. I am not at all surprised at the success this goldfish has had. As, as a neuroscientist, I can definitely confirm that a goldfish mirrors our, our economic system today. And it, its ability to forget and to translate this forgetting for all of us. With only 30 minutes in its memory, it is able to perfectly personify our economic system. It seemed that the brain of a goldfish perfectly mirrored the economic trends of the American banking system. And it was no surprise that Jed's goldfish was on its way to success. With a 30-minute memory, it was everything a bank system needed to succeed. And an infinite desire for growth and consumption of anything it saw it quickly rose to the top to become CEO in the newest and largest, most successful investment bank on Wall Street, Goldfish Sachs. With stock prices going through the roof, the international banking industry turned to the Goldfish to help it move into even larger and larger investments. Hey, Robert, I'm going to drug you again so we can go forward in time. Ah! To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army... Why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them! All right, Robert, we're here in the offices on Wall Street, inside Goldfish Sacks, where Jed sits in the chair and translates everything the Goldfish says. Here he is in a meeting. I can't really see straight, but it looks like the Goldfish has grown. What's going on? I know it looks like a pancake, but it's still a Goldfish. Now we're here in a meeting between a group of fishermen and goldfish sacks. Jed's sitting in the chair, and he's about to give them the advice of the goldfish. We're worried that we've overfished. What's your advice in order to get the next loan to see us through this quarter? All right, goldfish sacks. You heard the man. What's he need to do? More, more. There's, there's more, more fish in the ocean. They're hiding. They're hiding down in the bottom. They're hiding down in the cracks and the crannies. And what you got to do is you got to get some big, big nets big nets with tiny tiny little spaces between them and you're gonna drag them nets through all the ocean to all the little cracks and the crevices and the crannies and all the deep crevices where they try to hide and you're gonna get all the fish out of there you're gonna eat them all mm. more and more the psychotic rantings of the goldfish was taking over the banking industry's finest moving into even darker and darker waters. As the pressures increased on the goldfish and Jed, the waters seemed to be getting stormier and darker for the not-so-little fish. I'm here for the fish. Yes, uh... Jed's goldfish had turned to prostitution, drugs, and alcohol. Uh, I'm here for the fish. He ordered uh, a bunch of white powder. The fish now demanded to swim in nothing but the finest champagne. Instead of his usual flakes for food, now the goldfish demanded nothing but cocaine. As the goldfish's sick habits accumulated, the toll on its health also grew. Not only was the size of the goldfish growing, its hunger was growing as well. Eventually, the goldfish got so hooked on prostitutes and cocaine, its life became very, very dark. The large amount of gold that the goldfish was eating just became paper. Large stacks of meaningless paper. Now that the goldfish was too big to sail, it was starting to be a very serious issue for the Federal Reserve banking system. Jad's health deteriorated as well. Oh man, I don't know if I can talk to the goldfish no more. I just, I didn't need to get out of here. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. No, no. I would see and Sinclair is who twice, boards of investment banks turn to when their CEOs needed serious interventions. Twice. 
She was brought in to help with Jed and his goldfish. Very agitated. And we would sit and talk about the goldfish's problems. And invariably, it was issues around impulse control and runaway appetites. And the goldfish has such a singular personality that it was, it was almost difficult to see that Jed was there, always with the goldfish, prone on the floor, blabbering, not making much sense. He would open and close his mouth and sounds would come out, but it was very difficult to distinguish what he was saying and he was ostensibly still interpreting for the goldfish, but it was harder and harder to tell any sense of, of what Jed was saying or the goldfish was saying or what the goldfish was saying or what Jed was saying and it was difficult to tell them apart and there really was a personality disorder going on between Jed and the goldfish and the goldfish and Jed and yeah and how did it make how you did feel? it make me feel it just made me feel like going out and getting some more more as the goldfish spiraled deeper and deeper into despair it seemed that the only way to keep the goldfish alive was life support large amounts of life support the crisis became so severe the nation's leaders were at a loss at what to do they were willing to throw anything that they could add it in order to feed its insatiable appetite. Stabilization of the financial markets is a critical first step, but even if they stabilize, as we hope they will, broader economic recovery will not happen right away. Economic activity had been decelerating even before the recent intensification of the crisis. All right, Robert, one more round of drugs. Oh, no, no, oh my God. Bueller, well, I need to threaten you. Not at all. You see, nowadays, we can take a unique and beautiful object Hey, I, I remember this place. This is the hospital room. Yeah, we're back here, and the goldfish is now getting ready to pass away. It's on the verge of exploding. The goldfish has eaten so many rounds of cocaine, prostitutes, pancakes, and most of the resources of the entire planet that it's really on the verge of explosion. It's consumed more energy more natural resources, more people, and has destroyed more lives than any known goldfish has ever done before. Meaning it's the most successful investment bank ever in the history of the world. It has accomplished what other goldfish have only dreamed of accomplishing in its short time here on the world stage. Its lack of accountability has been staggering. Now there are goldfish business schools established all across the United States in honor of its amazing business logic and advice, and many generations of business leaders go to their boardrooms to speak the gospel of the goldfish. In the last moments of the goldfish's life, Jed looked into the goldfish's eyes and whispered a meaningful statement of heartfelt empathy. I don't know, I think this one's about dead. Somebody better go to the, the pet store and get me another goldfish. This episode of Radio Jab was brought to you by a big corporation which channels a tiny little piece of its profits back into something that seems like it might be public service. And the few 
charitable trusts that actually exist. This episode is brought to you by Poor's Light, turning Clear Mountain Springs into beer for generations. And the Institute for the Foundation of the Organization of the Institution. On the next Radio Jab, we visit Robert in Sleeping Pill Rehab. A neuroscientist explains why he can only speak in sound effects.